Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. morning. I actually thought there'd be about 10 of you here this morning. Uh, Everyone else is out camping, so I am grateful and glad that you are here. Um, At least I know now who has campers and who does not have a camper. Um, or, Or I know that you folks are the ones with good sense who would rather sleep at home in your own bed and be comfortable, so... Let's pray just a minute. Father, we give this hour to you for this time. Father, we're speaking about our enemy this morning, and that's not always an easy subject or a fun one to talk about, but your word tells us that we have an enemy. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you would open your word to us, open our hearts and our understanding, and help us to understand better the enemy that we have. And then, Father, I pray for those who are out at Camp Warner also, uh, studying the same passage, and I pray for Pastor Tom and for that group, uh, the same thing. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I didn't really put it together that Pastor Tom was speaking on the same subject that I am this morning, which makes sense because we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 6 over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to talk about today, know your enemy, and the next couple of weeks, Pastor Jeremy will be speaking on uh, putting on the armor of God. It was December 7, 1941, 6 a.m., at the entrance to Pearl Harbor, when the USS Ward sunk a mini-submarine. That should have been a big tell. At that same time, 153 planes took off from six uh, air-top carriers, uh, ships, followed shortly after that by another 170. 353 planes in all. 40 of those would be carrying torpedoes. 103 would be high-level bombers. 131 were dive bombers. And 79 were fighter planes. And they were headed for Pearl Harbor. They arrived at 7.30. Detected on radar. But get this. The officer running the radar couldn't believe or understand what he was seeing on his radar. He called his commanding officer, who said, I will call you back, and never did. Mitsuyu Fushida, the commander in charge of this air raid from Japan, was the lead plane. What Mitsuyu was going to do was he would fly ahead into Pearl Harbor, If he felt that they were undetected, 
the torpedo planes would come in first with all the others following. If he felt that we were aware of their presence, the high um, bombers would come in first, bomb, and then the torpedo planes would come in. He came in and realized we were totally unprepared for their arrival, and he signaled for the torpedo planes to come in. Now, Pearl Harbor, on the average, is only 32 feet deep. We felt secure having all of that fleet in Pearl Harbor because torpedoes couldn't be utilized at only an average of 32 feet of water. Normally, they would be dropped from 300 feet. They would need deeper water to go in before they leveled out. Four months before Pearl Harbor, Commander Fushida was given the task to figure out how they could change that. And by adding more fins to the torpedo, and by flying in at 50 feet instead of 300 feet, they could utilize the torpedoes. And they came in. And for 110 minutes, they unleashed all of their fury on Pearl Harbor. In that time, 2,403 of our Navy were killed. 1,178 were wounded. Six of our ships were destroyed and 169 of our planes destroyed. Several of these ships, the Arizona and the Utah, still lay in the bottom of Pearl Harbor. The Arizona had been loaded and ready to go out to sea. It had 500,000 gallons of oil in it. As of 2018, the article I read, the Arizona was still leaking nine quarts of oil every day as our reminder. We lost the battle at Pearl Harbor because we were unprepared and we had no clue who our enemy was or his tactics and we felt secure in our ignorance. Christians, I'm here to tell you this morning, we have an enemy. We can know him and we can be prepared. Our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 6. And I would really like to read for right now verse 12, which says, For we fight not against people made of flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers and the authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against wicked spirits in heavenly realms. People, we're not fighting flesh and blood like Pearl Harbor. We're fighting against an unseen enemy, Satan and all of his angels. Five times in this passage, the word against is used. And I don't know about you, but if somebody is against me, they're my enemy. Five times it is mentioned here. Our enemy, his name is Satan, which means adversary and is used 50 times. The word devil means slanderer and is used 35 times. Matthew 13 tells us he is our enemy. He's called the tempter. He's called the liar. He's called the accuser and the adversary. Sounds like an enemy 
to me. While I was studying, I came across something that gave me, uh, the speaker mentioned Satan has two goals. One is to keep the damned damned. Those who are lost, he wants them to be lost. And it tells us in Scripture that he snatches the truth away from them. The other one is he wants Christians to be miserable. And I know, maybe theologically that's not quite the right answer. But if you're a believer, Satan wants to attack you and take from you those things that God has promised you. John 10.10 tells us that the thief, Satan, comes to steal and kill and destroy. People, the enemy is after you. Man, I wish I was preaching about the love of God. I wish I was teaching on the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace. But we have an enemy, and we have to be aware of him and his tactics. We need to understand who we are facing. The Barna survey of about uh, 1,800 professed Christians were asked if they believed that the devil was a real person or was he simply just an influence or an ideal. More than 50% of Christians do not believe, according to this survey, that Satan is a real person, but only an ideal or a thought or an influence. John MacArthur, if I may quote him, said, one of Satan's most effective strategies and therefore one of the believer's greatest dangers is the delusion that no seriously threatening conflict of good and evil is really raging in the invisible and supernatural realm. And if Satan can convince believers that there's really no battle going on and this is just life and sometimes I have hard times and sometimes I fall into sin uh, or sometimes I struggle, then Satan has already won some battle in us. I'd like to look at Ezekiel for just a minute. Now, I know that's not a book we all read a whole lot. Um, Chapter 28, and I'd like us to see a little bit who this enemy is. If you read Ezekiel 28, it starts out talking about the prince of Tyre. And this prince is bragging on himself. He's bragging about his wealth, his glory, his beauty, his wisdom. Um, He's just carrying on about himself, but he does fall. And actually, um, he is taken captive, and um, in the passage, it actually actually says, when he's taken captive, he says, uh, now why don't you boast, I am a God to those who kill you. This was, this was a man. But as we start chat, uh, verse 11 in Ezekiel 28, we now shift from the prince of Tyre to the king of Tyre. So it's like a curtain is, has, has come up and come down. The prince of Tyre was a real person. Now we're starting to talk about Satan and a description of him. And one of the keys that would tell us that we're doing this is, he says, I was in the Garden of Eden. Well, there weren't a whole lot of people in the Garden of Eden. There was Adam and Eve. God came and visited them in the cool of the evening. And Lucifer was there. Satan was there. 
So this passage talks about who Satan is. First of all, I'd want you to know that he was a created being. In verse 15, it would tell us, um, you were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until evil was found in you. Satan is a created being. All right? He's not like God. He hasn't always been here. Um, Satan is not um, like God in that respect. Also, let me just say this a minute too. We have an idea or a misconception about Satan that Satan is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. Nothing in Scripture tells us that Satan is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present, okay? Um, Verse 12 does tell us that he was full of wisdom, but that doesn't mean complete wisdom or perfect wisdom, but that he has great wisdom. And it tells us that he was perfect in beauty. So as a created being, Satan has great wisdom. He has great beauty. Verse 13 tells us that he's adorned with precious stones, and it gives us that list of precious stones. And this kind of speaks to the high stature that Satan had in heaven. And these same stones are mentioned two other places in Scripture, on the breastplate of the high high priest, on that garment, and also in the New Jerusalem, uh, these same stones are mentioned. So these stones are of high regard, so that gives us a place of Satan. Verse 14 would tell us that he's the guardian of the throne of God. Wow. That is amazing that he was the keeper of God's throne. And verse 15 tells us that he was blameless. Satan, like man, was created with a free will. He had the ability to choose to honor God or not. And in verse 15, it says, evil was found in him. And verse 17 says, he was filled with pride. So in the midst of all this glory, in the midst of all this beauty, he becomes, gets consumed with the fact, I am so beautiful. I am so wonderful. I have such knowledge. And pride comes into his life. And then in Isaiah chapter 14, it tells us a little bit of Satan's statements in the midst of all this pride. He exalts himself and he wants to be above God. And in Isaiah 14, he says, I will ascend into heaven and set my throne above God's stars. And I will preside in the mountain of the gods away from uh, the north. And I will climb into the highest heavens. And I will be like the most high God. And Satan, in all of his pride, falls into sin. And God recognizes that. In verse 15, it tells us that he's cast out of heaven. And in his, back in Ezekiel 28, 17, he says, So I threw you to the earth. And Revelation 12, 4 says, um, or tells us that he took one-third of the angels with him. So this enemy of ours was an exalted, lifted-up being, guarding the throne of God. And pride comes into his life, and he says, I will, I will, I will. And God cast him out of heaven. So where does he go? Ezekiel said he cast him to the earth. 
John 12, 31 says he is the ruler of this world. 1 Corinthians 4, 4 says he's the God of this age. And Ephesians 2, 2 says he is the prince and the power of the air. So how does he work? Let me give you two thoughts. I just I have a bunch of scriptures I want to do today, but or just to help you understand. First Peter 5 8 tells us that Satan goes about as a roaring lion. So I picture I've been to the zoo, I see a lion, man, they're majestic. You know, in all their glory. Um, our granddaughter was over and she told me she heard a maybe she said a tiger. I was thinking lion. She told me she heard a tiger roar when she was at the zoo, and it was amazing, okay? So we think of this majestic animal or this majestic animal in Africa um, roaming, and they show National Geographic will show you he's stalking his prey. Who's he after? He's after the one that's sick or alone. Sorry, old. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, Okay. He's not looking for the strong. He's after the weakly. And he prances on them. And they always cut out, the lion jumps on them, and then that's kind of all you see because we don't want to see the other part. Well, think of Paul's image um, as he writes about a roaring lion. He didn't see a lion in a zoo. He may have seen a lion in a coliseum or heard what lions do in a coliseum. And he said, Satan is going about to you believers And he wants to destroy you in any way that he can. But he also kind of takes the flip side here. In Ephesians 6.12, it tells us that Satan is disguised as an angel of light. And I want to be real clear. Satan is not an angel of light. Satan is disguised as an angel of light. Satan is darkness. There is no light in Satan. Um. You know what? Let's just do something here, Matt. You know, I always like to have some kind of an illustration. So, how does Satan operate? Now, I don't know if you can read it, but my sign says free cheese. So if you'll give me just a minute to set this. Would somebody like to set this for me? (laughs) Got to remember which side I want to touch here. this is my friend Mr. Rat here. I know you think, where in the world do you get a rat puppet? I found this thing years ago and I love it. Rats like cheese. But rats know that this is not a good place to get cheese. So Mr. Rat's going along one day 
And all of a sudden he looks and there's cheese. Do you know Satan's called the tempter? And he brings things into our life that would just catch our eye a little bit. And if he can just get me to turn this way a little bit. Have you had anything that just caught your eye a little bit? So I walk just about every day. I try to. I'm walking in our neighborhood and somebody has the most beautiful car. I had to go over to the car and see what it was. It was in the parking lot. It's a Nissan 370Z. It's red. It is sporty. It is beautiful. I'm not a car guy. I want a truck or an SUV. I have zero interest in a car. But one day I'm walking and I caught a glimpse and it drew my eye and my attention. And now, if I could figure out how to put my kayak in a Nissan 370Z, I would buy one because I want that car. And the tempter puts a piece of cheese out there in front of me. And he said, oh, Mark, if you would only follow this, or Mark, if I could get you to pursue something else, if, I could, if he can just get my eye. So Mr. Rat's going along, and the cheese catches his eye. And the cheese catches his eye, and he's tempted but he knows cheese is not a good thing, okay? Now, I'll tell you something. Let me shift illustrations a little bit. You might not believe this, but when I'm fishing with a black plastic worm, which is my favorite, at least 50% of the time, when I throw that fish back, I throw them all back. When I throw that fish back, I always say to him, didn't your mama tell you, don't eat black worms? I say that all the time, and I'm by myself so I can laugh and nobody gets it, all right? I know cheese isn't good for me. But the enemy is a liar. Now, I know we don't like to call people names, but in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said of Satan, our enemy, that he is a liar and there's no truth in him. And now Mr. Rat looks and Satan is saying, oh, That cheese isn't going to hurt you any. Here. Do you believe it? That cheese won't hurt you. And Satan is also a deceiver. And I kind of struggled. What's the difference between liar and deceiver? Liar is the outright lie. A deceiver is the one who tries to get you to believe the lie. That cheese won't hurt you. Lie. Deceiver, oh, come on. That cheese won't hurt you. Look what a big chunk that is. Yeah, I took kind of a big piece out of the fridge. Look what, what a big chunk that is. Do you know how good that's going to taste? You'll be licking your chops all night if you only just gave in a little bit. In fact, why don't you just try it one time? Just once couldn't hurt, could it? Liar, deceiver, 
if I could just get him to try it. And then you know what? This may hurt. Sometimes we take the bait. Yeah, it did. (laughs) And we take the bait. And now you know what? Satan is an accuser. And now Satan says, how could you be so stupid? You know, when Satan tempts you with sin, and then you give in to that sin, you know what he didn't tell you? There's going to be guilt and shame, and he's going to come to you and accuse you. Hey, I thought you were such a good Christian. I thought you didn't do that. What are the people in church going to think? And we have someone who accuses us. All the while, he's saying, oh, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And we take the bait. And that is how Satan operates. And then, not only is he the accuser to us, but he goes before God, and he accuses us before God. I thought that was your child. And the Bible tells us if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So when Satan goes to God and says, hey, look at that one, I thought he was a believer. Jesus is there saying he is, and my blood covers his sin. He is one of mine. I just wanted to, (laughs) this is such a hard subject for me. I just needed to give you just a bit of, of a break there. But that's how Satan operates in rat world, okay? If, if I can explain it that way. Let me tell you how Satan really operates. Turn to Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> I wonder if Pastor Tom had a rat in his sermon today. I really should have compared notes with him. I should have got his notes. Let's look at a real example of how Satan tempts us. And this is Satan tempting Jesus. Now, if we go back earlier in the chapter, and actually it tells us this in uh, Matthew chapter 3 is where else it's recorded in Scripture, uh, the temptation of Jesus. Jesus had just been baptized. Father descended like a dove, said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then if we start in Luke 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Spirit. Jesus is on a spiritual plane, on a high plateau. This isn't a place like in our life where we're struggling, and we're down or have issues, and then the enemy comes. Jesus is at the highest, highest peak in his spiritual life, if if I may say it that way. Um, Everything, read, he's full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit, and he goes out in the wilderness. Now, I think we have a little bit of a misunderstanding about this temptation because we think that after 40 days of fasting, he was tempted. But read the text. Um, Let's see. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, Um, left the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit to go out into the wilderness where the devil tempted him for 40 days. 
See, he's already endured 40 days of temptation. I always think he just, we always just think he fasted for 40 days and then was tempted. He's been brutally attacked for 40 days. And now there's a couple of more attacks here where we're told what they are. Now, after 40 days, he ate nothing and at that time was very hungry. Have any of you fasted for 40 days before? Okay. Anybody fasted for a week? I did kind of one time. I only drank liquid for a week. Um, my mom was a health nut at one point in her life. Um, and so she said, take this medication. Um, I'm just, it's so funny to me. Anyhow, Sones number seven. Go home and look it up. No. Uh, take this medication and only drink liquid for a week. And this was going to help purge my system, okay? I was in a health. I did it just because mom kind of dared me to. After a week, violent things happened to my body. But for a week, I only drank juice, okay? Can you imagine going without food for 40 days? So watch a TV show like Alone, where they're in the wilderness. Two biggest things, food and shelter, you got to get food. you got to get nourishment. And then Satan comes, and all he wants to talk about is food. Like, when I'm really, really hungry, don't just stand here talking to me about food. Let's go get food. Okay? Um, it's like when you're not feeling good. Let's not talk about the time I was really, really sick. Or those kinds of things. But, so here's Satan. He knows Jesus is hungry. And he wants to talk about food. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, change this stone into a loaf of bread. Jesus, you have a need in your life. In fact, your greatest need of anything in your life right now is bread. You need food. And you can take care of it, Jesus. Because you're the son of God. And you could say, stone, become a loaf of bread. And it would be bread and your greatest need would be taken care of. But Jesus answers him and says, um, no, scriptures say people need more than bread for their life. So he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I want to read just a little bit of that passage so you understand what's happening there. Actually, um, here's a call or a reminder that they should obey God, okay? And in the midst of, you know what, people, you need to obey God is this illustration. So um, Deuteronomy 8, let me start in verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character? And to find out whether or not you would really obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. And then feeding you with manna. A food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. You know, in essence, Satan is actually even saying to Jesus. You know what? God took care of the nation Israel. And gave them manna all the time. Why aren't you being taken care of? So he could throw that doubt in there. But it says he did it to teach the people. That they need more than bread for their life. Real life comes by feeding on every 
word of God. And when Satan came to Jesus, he said, you need food. Jesus said to him, you know what? It's not this that matters most. It's this. And Satan comes to us and he tells us, this is so important, um, whether it be an issue with your car or something, um, a school, a job, your marriage, health. Satan always wants to say, this is so important. You have to take care of this first. This is your greatest need. And Scripture tells in Deuteronomy and what Jesus said, it's not this that's first. You keep this right first. That's what's most important. And then this will be taken care of. But if Satan can get us to turn and pursue what we think we need most, that's one of his goals. Um, Back to Luke chapter 4, the next temptation there. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil told him, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them because they are mine to give to anyone I please. And I will give it all to you if you bow and worship me. You know, Satan said they're mine to give. Do you remember that Satan is the ruler of the world, the God of this age, and the prince and the power of the air? Satan said, I will give this all to you if you only bow down and worship me. You know, one day, every knee will bow. But Jesus, or Satan says, we can speed that up. You could have that right now. Jesus says to him, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You know what? That would have been a great temptation. Man, I could have all that. And Satan throws stuff like that into our life. Like, we can enjoy all of this goodness or... um, You know, we can have so much if we only will just pursue that. And to to worship is the one we adore or love. But Jesus said not only adore and love, we're not only to worship, but we're to serve. He said, um, the verse he said was, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Serve is a good word because worship is love and adore. Serve is who I give my time to. And just like that Nissan 370Z in bright red, um, that could become my idol. And I could give my time to that. Look, we think, I don't leave God for for a car. Yeah, we do. I have something here that I have carried in my Bible since November 27, 1988. This was from Pastor Mike. And it was a morning service, and here's what I kept from that. Idolatry is not merely something you do outwardly with your body. It occurs whenever anyone or anything becomes more important to you than the living God. I have kept this in my Bible because I read it often. And sometimes things can become more important to me than God. And I give it my worship, my love. Listen, there's nothing wrong with fishing. 
Oh, thank you, Lord. I, I said that just for my own conscience. There's nothing wrong with fishing. There's nothing wrong. I'd say golf, but that's... There's nothing wrong with sports or things or items. But when they become more important to us than God, and we give them more time than God, and that's who we serve, that's who we pursue, this is what Satan is saying. Look, pursue this. I'll, I'll give it to you. Jesus, no, my worship and my service is only to the Heavenly Father. And we're so easily distracted. And there's one more temptation. And the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the Son of God, jump off. <laughs> wow, that sounds really weird and actually get this Satan quotes scripture now Satan will twist scripture or question scripture like or, or God's word remember when he said to Eve did God really say but here Satan actually quotes scripture and he says, why don't you jump off the highest point of the temple? Because he said, the scriptures say he ordered his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you with their hands to keep you from striking your foot on a stone. Hmm. God's promise to protect the Messiah. And Satan says, well, then why don't you just jump? Now, I used to like heights. Honestly, I used to think it would be a fun job to change the light bulbs in those radio towers, I thought that would be a great job when I was younger. I'm not into heights anymore. And I was thinking about that. Where this black line is up there, we had scaffolding here so we could paint that high up, and they had to take the scaffolding down. And Jay says to me, hey, can you help me? I'm like, yeah, without thinking. Yeah, I got about halfway up the scaffolding. And I'm like, this isn't a good idea. And then I got it on the top of the scaffolding, which is about that high. And we had to take the sides off because we're taking it down. So now I'm way up there, and there is nothing around me. And I'm tense. Okay? And then we dissembled this thing. And when I got to the floor, I was very happy. Satan says to Jesus, Let's go up to the highest point of, of this, tavern, of this uh, temple. Um, I don't know if I wrote it down. Google, okay. You can Google anything. Um, Google said it was 211 feet. All right, that's higher than I want to be. But Satan says to Jesus, just jump. And really what he said to Jesus was, you jump and demand that God catch you. Well, I don't think Scripture teaches that to us. Um, but anyhow, here, let, let me go here a minute. Um, Jesus responds with Scripture, do not test the Lord your God. Now, I have tried to work through this verse, and I debated if I would say anything or not. Um, Satan says to Jesus, I'm taking you up to the highest in Jerusalem, to the top of the temple. 
and I want you to jump. Now, I listened to a sermon where a pastor used this verse, and I tried to search it out to see if this was accurate or not, and I'm kind of struggling. But Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare a way for me. Then the Lord you are seeking will come suddenly to his temple. And what this speaker suggested was, Satan was saying, you know what? They're expecting Jesus to appear. And if you jump and the angels bring you down to the temple, certainly everyone would believe that you are of God. Now, even without the verse in Malachi, which I'm still sorting through, I'm not 100%, but if Satan would say to Jesus, all right, we're on top of the temple, you jump and trust God's angels to, to catch you, just think of it. If Jesus was brought to the ground by angels and people would have seen that, they would have accepted him as of God. And partly what Satan is saying is, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. You could forgo all that and just go right to the finish line because Satan never wanted Jesus to go to the cross. And if he could distract that. So Satan is... is um, Offering that there, and then Jesus um, answers him with Scripture. We think that's the end of Jesus' temptations, right? Because that's the end of the story. But if you read the next verse, it says, And when the devil finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Listen, we think because we struggle with temptation that, um, look, I get through this, I'm going to be done. Satan is always looking for opportunity to, te to tempt you. Um, let me just do this very quickly. When I started studying about Satan it brought something to me that is of really deep concern to me because even months ago, I started a list of things that Satan lies to us about. See, Jesus, and like I said in John 8, said that Satan is a liar. Satan comes to you and lies all the time. And I had on my list several things that I think Satan lies about, and I think they are huge in our Christian life. Satan would delight to tell you that God couldn't or doesn't love you. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God directed his love to, toward you while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. For you to say that I'm not good enough and he couldn't love me, the Bible says he loved you when you weren't good. All right? He loved you when you were a sinner. Scripture tells us in 1 John 4.10, wherein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us before we even love him. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that if we only believe in him, we can have eternal life. And 1 John 4.19 says, we love God because he first loved us. People, if Satan throws the lie to you that God doesn't love you, that is not true. Another huge lie, and as I meet with a lot of men, 
Here's what I hear. I couldn't be forgiven. Satan will throw that in your face every day. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, how do you argue with that? Colossians 2 tells us that he forgave all of our sins and he destroyed the list that the enemy had. Listen, when Jesus was at the cross, somehow that list was destroyed and the enemy wants to come and accuse you of sin. Let me tell you something. You say to the enemy, where's the list? Show me your list because Jesus says you're forgiven. And in Colossians 1 chapter, uh, in Colossians 1 it tells us that we are blameless before God and there's nothing that he will hold against us and that enemy delights in coming to us and saying, yeah, but what about the day you did that? Yeah, nobody else knows it. Only you might know it. And the enemy will throw it in your face because he's an accuser. And I would like to say the last thing I'd like to say about Satan being a liar is he says that God can't use you. Maybe it's because of something in your life. Maybe it's um, just he bought the lie that I could never be a youth worker. I could never help with something. Listen, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 tells us that you have in your life the same power that brought Jesus from the dead. You have resurrection power in your life. And Satan says, well, you couldn't help in children's ministry. What? With resurrection power, I certainly could. Listen, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we're a body of Christ. And every part of the body has a function. And when we buy the lie that I can't do something for God, the body doesn't work correctly. If I may use this illustration, I'd rather stand here and speak to you than help a children's ministry because kids scare me. And when they had art camp, I didn't offer to Marcy to help until the last minute. You know what I did? I got an air compressor and I blew up the swimming pools and put sand in them. And I put water in these toys and I inflated these easels so they could finger paint. And I was part of the body of Christ. And somebody else came and played with the kids. And somebody else came and got crackers ready and drinks. And somebody else came and, on, and just, and only, and ju or just helped the kids with their craft. And then Pastor Jeremy got to teach a Bible lesson. I want to tell you, in the heart of God's ministry, inflating those pools or serving crackers or playing with kids was as huge a part in the ministry that day as Pastor Jeremy when he shared the gospel of those kids because that all made that possible. And Satan says to you, you can't serve, you can't help, you can't be a part. And the Bible says we can because we have all the power in Christ. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.
And I stand here today only because the Father gives me strength. And I'll be really transparent. The closer it gets to Sunday, the less sure I am that I can do this. And on Friday, I'm not very sure. And generally on Saturday, I say to Gwen, I don't know why I say yes. And all this week, I have claimed that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I will not accept the lie that Satan throws. And back to Ephesians 6. The strength that I have In verse 10 it says, in a final word, be strong in the Lord's mighty power. Look, we don't serve in our own strength. We serve in the strength and the power of God our Father. Now I had kind of a hard task today because I can talk about the enemy, but I can't talk about the armor. <laughs> so I'm telling you today, you have an enemy and he wants to defeat you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But you need armor. And you have to come back next week to learn about the armor. Let's pray. Father, um, we acknowledge today that we have an enemy. But I acknowledge today that your word says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so, Father, even though we focused on the enemy today to know him, I want us to leave here today knowing that our strength, our power, your word says we can renew our strength by waiting on you. Um, our strength comes from you, Father. And we stand in that, and we resist the devil in the strength and the power that you give us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.